In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where myth and misconception is divorced, beheaded and then dies. The podcast where we break away from the historical falsehood and quietly marry the truth. I am your regular host, Paul Baffle, and this is an extra Gloucester History Festival special. As well, today's guest was not available to speak to us at the festival. She has graciously agreed to join us remotely afterwards. Today, I am joined by historian, author, Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces and Chancellor of Bishop Grocester University, Tracy Borman. Tracy, welcome to History Rage. Thank you, Paul, very much for having me. I'm very pleased to be with you. Good. It's wonderful to have you here. You've been on our target list for a while. Are you, are you feeling angry? Just furious. Excellent. Actually. Absolutely <laughs> raging. Good. So I've seen you on countless history documentaries, festivals, book signings. Um, believe it or not, you were the person that somewhat accidentally spurred us to try and get on the stage at Chalk Valley, which we recently succeeded. Oh, that's fantastic. We sat in your presentation 2018 on The King's Witch. Oh, yeah. that takes me back. Doesn't it just? And we thought, yeah, yeah, we, we could get up there. We could do this. And five years later, we actually managed it. So thank you very much. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. Oh, just such a top festival, eh? Love Chalk Valley. Well, while we're promoting other festivals. <laughs> oh, yeah, obviously. Obviously, Gloucester being the best. Indeed. <laughs> so before we dive into the rage, can you tell us a bit about your career and background and... A, a journey to the Tower of London that some people might envy. Yes, I've actually managed to get out of the Tower of London. Not many people can say that in history. So I've loved history for as long as I can remember. It's the only thing I was good at at school. Loved visiting historic sites. I was a bit of a nerd, actually, as a, as a child and, and then a very studious young woman at school and studied history at university, but had no idea what to do with that. And I remember going to see a careers advisor when I was a student and I said, look, yeah, I love history. What can I do? And they said, well, forget it for a career. Just do something else. <laughs> Keep history as a hobby, he said. Really pleased I didn't listen to that, yeah. actually. 
So I worked in heritage as soon as I left university, getting, you know, a series of, of very dead end jobs, but at least for heritage organizations. And, and so that's the one strand of my career. Um, and as you say, I work for historic royal palaces now. Total dream job, actually. And I've got Paul, I will confess, major imposter syndrome every time. I walk up that pathway towards uh, the west front of Hampton Court or over the drawbridge into the Tower of London. I think I'm going to get found out one of these days. <laughs> I shouldn't really be here. I love it. I love walking in the footsteps of people that I'm then writing about. In my other career, when I'm writing books, and I have to say, it's probably where I'm happiest mm. is when I'm sort of ferreted away in in a little archive or even a big archive somewhere and doing my research surrounded by old documents and and trying to write it into something that people will actually want to read. I love doing that. And then yes, the other the other thing or one of the other things I do apart from broadcasting and filming and, and podcasts, growth area, love yeah. a podcast, is in my home city of Lincoln. Uh, so I'm a native yellow belly. Uh, hopefully people from Lincolnshire who listen to your podcast will understand that reference. Um, even if anybody else thinks that I'm being literal there. I am Chancellor of Bishop Grosseteste University, which is a huge honour and one that I've only just taken on. So I get to wear a very fancy gown once a year and give out degrees. Uh, yeah. Some of them are to history students. So basically, it all leads to history. All roads lead to history in my career. And I feel so lucky to be doing a job that I absolutely love. I think Winston Churchill said, if you find a job you love, you'll never work again. I think that's very yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Although my father did say, if you turn your hobby into your job, you learn to hate your hobby. <laughs> that's the flip side. Yeah. And let's be honest, it's, it's not all plain sailing. There are those days. And I have to say, this morning was one of them when, so I spent the weekend, not just at Gloucester, I then went to the Windsor Festival and, and, a great time at both. I mean, Gloucester was phenomenal. Loved it. Great time at both. But then when my alarm clock went off this morning, I was like, oh, no, I need an actual weekend now. I really need yeah. not to be going to work today. <laughs> yeah, I find day job plus podcast plus historical performance. And it's like I have about one day off a year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the, the price you pay for working in your passion, isn't it? And it is, yes. So you've come on to rage about a particular particular myth that you want to get out there in the open and well and truly executed. So let's kick into this then. So Tracy, today, what is the one thing you wish everyone would just stop believing? That Elizabeth I cared nothing for her mother, Anne Boleyn. I am sick of hearing this. It's part of the reason I wrote my new book. There we go. We got in a shameless plug early on. They're the best kind of plug. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. But I have read this. I've heard it said so many times. Oh, Elizabeth didn't really think anything of Anne Boleyn. She never mentioned her. That's the sort of the subsidiary rage. Elizabeth never mentioned Anne Boleyn. I almost went for that, but it's part of the same thing, really. And that she was a daddy's girl. Loved her father, Henry VIII. And so the story goes, and I want to disabuse your listeners of this myth and it does make me enraged actually because it's so inaccurate and I guess it's slightly understandable if I'm going to just calm down for a moment mm -hmm. it is because 
Elizabeth was less than three years old when her mother was executed. So, you know, it stands to reason that Anne perhaps didn't have that much of an impact on her daughter. And also, I'm being very fair here, Paul. I hope you realise that. Oh, that, you'll get um, worse. <laughs> I'm just winding myself up gradually. But also, Elizabeth herself really led people up the garden path in a way because in her speeches, she does come across as a daddy's girl. She talks endlessly about Henry VIII and she's the lion's cub and she's always referencing her father. By comparison, doesn't mention Anne Boleyn that much, although she does mention her Mm. and certainly more than twice. That's the other myth I hear quoted. But that's pure propaganda because Elizabeth knows her mother is controversial that really people still revere her father. That's where they see her right to the throne coming from, not from Anne Boleyn. So, of course, she's going to emphasise Henry in her speeches. But the truth was so far removed from that. Elizabeth spent her life trying to rehabilitate Anne Boleyn's shattered reputation after her dramatic downfall and execution in 1536. And as queen, she had plenty of opportunities to do just that. She would have been enraged, actually, by, by this. So I'm getting, I'm getting worked up on her behalf. She very much cared about her mother. I, I suppose if, if she's growing up, you know, when you meet the early adulthood where you might be talking to people, there are kind of two types of people in Henry VIII's England. There are people who revere him and there are people who are absolutely terrified of him. And both <laughs> of those are going to be saying really nice things. Yeah, exactly. Revere and fear. There is a thin dividing line between the two. And his reputation lives on well beyond his death in 1547. And he is absolutely still seen as the epitome of, of majesty and, and royal authority well into Elizabeth's reign. So nobody would dare to criticise Henry VIII. And certainly his daughter doesn't because she knows which side her bread is buttered. Or, do you know, I keep thinking of other rages. Maybe I'm just actually a much angrier person than I thought because... You know, I'm also a bit enraged about Henry VIII himself, just generally. <laughs> he, make, he, he makes me angry. No particular well, angle, just, yeah. Don't, don't feel that you can't come back. Helen Fryer's booked on <laughs> to do a third rage. So, ah, so well, I, yeah, I, I have actually got another one as well up my sleeve. Right then. Mary, we, Mary Queen of Scots, just note that. Oh, if yeah, you making a note. Making a, or should, should I just put all Tudors? <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what? Because I I really thought I'm going to get into this uh, today. I'm going to get worked up. I'm not particularly an angry person. I'm terribly polite most of the time. Uh, But I deliberately uh, came to this podcast hungry, in in need of a drink. Um, That makes me sound awful, doesn't it? But but I I mean, even just a glass of water, you know, I came here fresh from work. The trains were delayed. So I was really worked up. I thought, this is great. This is me at peak anger now. Feel free to let fly. So can you, because the bulk of our listeners are actually not kind of Tudor historian types. So could you provide us with historical context regarding the life and times of Elizabeth I and her mother Anne Boleyn? What's, mm. give, us, give us your description of the political and social climate during their respective reigns. Yep. So beginning chronologically with, with Anne Boleyn's time at the English court, this was a melting pot 
of a time, really. It's the period when Henry VIII breaks England from Roman Catholic Europe, ushering in the Reformation. There's a revolution in government. There's rebellion, the pilgrimage of grace uh, and the Northern Rebellion against Henry VIII and his religious changes. Nobody wants Anne Boleyn as queen. They call her the great whore and the concubine. They adore Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and see her as the true queen. So it's a very turbulent time. But amidst all of this, I mean, that does sound like everything was forced upon the people by the king, but there was genuine reform or a genuine desire for religious reform. People were growing tired of the corruption Mm. in the Catholic faith and in particular the monasteries. So it was also a sort of bottom-up revolution as well. But a very, very turbulent time, particularly the 1530s when, when Anne was queen, the early part of that decade. And then by the reign of Elizabeth, I mean, her predecessors had had a t- turbulent time of it as well. Both of her siblings, Edward and Mary, yeah, they had very short reigns. Her cousin, Lady Jane Grey, even shorter yep. than nine days queen. So the crown was changing hands very quickly. Nobody expected Elizabeth to last any longer. They thought she's just going to go the same way as her siblings or somebody will just push her off the throne because she wasn't popular, really. Uh, there was rejoicing when she came to the throne, but beneath that veneer. Again, feared or popular. revered. Yes, indeed, indeed. And Elizabeth, I think, and I know we disagree on this, Paul, but I think she deserves a huge amount of credit for pouring, now do you say pouring oil onto troubled waters? Is that the phrase where basically she calmed things down? And she uh, managed to pass a religious settlement that, yes, it didn't solve everything, but she inherited a divided country, Catholics versus Protestants. And she at least agreed a compromise that people could just about live with. And, And so that did lead to greater peace and stability. And of course, she would stick around for far longer than any of the other Tudors. She would reign for almost 45 years. And she, she brought, I guess, as well as stability and peace and prosperity. Uh, this is the era of overseas expansion. She brought a sense of pride in England and also pride in the monarchy. She was a brilliant propagandist. Mm. So her reign, you see much more of a settled situation than the England that her mother knew. Now, that's a generalization. Of course, there were, there were exceptions to that rule, particularly with the, the Catholic rebellions and, and later in Elizabeth's reign, after the Pope had excommunicated her, it was basically a free-for-all. Catholics were encouraged to assassinate Elizabeth. So this was the era of the Catholic plots and And the Tower of London became, should we say, rather busy and rather full uh, with Catholic plotters. So it wasn't all plain sailing for Elizabeth. So as you mentioned earlier on, she's nearly, she's not quite three years old when her mother is executed. Now, how much influence did Anne Boleyn have on Elizabeth's upbringing and education and creating that woman from that girl when she's Mm. not around to do so? She had a huge amount of influence. So when Elizabeth was born, of course, Henry VIII, very, very disappointed, wrong sex, should have been a boy. And Anne, to her credit, never showed anything even approaching disappointment. She doted on her tiny daughter from the very 
Stark, one ambassador said, you know, day and night, she will not let this daughter of hers out of her sight. Even having velvet cushions placed next to her throne so that Elizabeth could be next to her hmm. uh, when she was conducting court business. But royal tradition dictated that when a royal infant reached the ripe old age of three months, they would be sent away from court, from their parents, and established in their own household. And that's what happened with Elizabeth. She was sent to Hatfield. But Anne ensured her influence would continue because she handpicked the women and some of the men who would go with Elizabeth. And they were Berlin's, Berlin relatives, Berlin associates. And I think it's it's thanks to those appointees that Anne was to maintain her influence over Elizabeth, even after death. Mm. And I think really it enabled Elizabeth to grow up with a positive impression of her mother, uh, the mother who the rest of England, the rest of Europe was calling you know, the scandal of Christendom. But Elizabeth grew up with a much more positive view of her mother. I would say probably the biggest influence Anne had over Elizabeth. I mean, you could point to things like love of fashion. She was a great flirt like Anne. But more seriously, religion. Anne was a very dedicated religious reformer, not a Protestant. I think we need to be clear with this. Uh, there was a difference uh, in that Anne wanted reform from within the Catholic Church. So this wasn't yet known as, as Protestantism. Mm -hmm. it, it sort of became that. But she certainly influenced Elizabeth along the path of religious reform. I've I've heard Anne referred to as a Lutheran, which I've always viewed as being a Protestant, but is, mm. is that the case? I'm not sure she really was. She she believed certain or she would have agreed with Luther in certain things, but but she certainly wouldn't have described herself as a Lutheran. And um she um, was very influenced by the works of of Tyndale for example, and what she was particularly interested in was this idea, and it was a quite a radical idea, that actually the king was above the church. The Pope shouldn't be telling the king what to do. The king mm. should be answerable to God alone. And that was really encapsulated in the book, uh, The Obedience of a Christian Man, which was one of many heretical books that Anne had imported into England. And she showed it to Henry VIII, and he liked what he read. This was absolutely fantastic because, of course, it justified what was starting to take root in his mind that, why should I just keep petitioning the Pope for this annulment from my first wife? I'm above the Pope. You know, I'm, I, my authority is greater than his. I'm only going to answer to God. And, and Anne pushed him along that path and ensured that her daughter was raised very much in the Reformed faith. And just a very telling example of just how much Elizabeth was influenced by her mother with religion is that Anne, in her final days, charged Matthew Parker, who was her personal chaplain, with looking after Elizabeth uh, in terms of her spiritual welfare. And Matthew Parker did certainly honour Anne's wishes. And Elizabeth made him her first Archbishop of Canterbury when she became Queen. So I think that's a real testament to the impact that Anne had had on her daughter. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, so how did Elizabeth's awareness of her mother's fate, not just execution, but kind of downfall and plot and so forth, how much did that impact her perspective on, A, her father, who you mentioned oh. she dotes on, and B, on power and on monarchy when she gets it. Mm. Isn't that fascinating? And did she dote on him? And she did in public. Not sure she quite felt that in private. Well, let me just deal with this question really in a slightly different way because essentially, was Elizabeth the Virgin Queen because of her mother? I think that's what it sort of boiled down to really in that it's not a great advert for marriage if your father orders your mother's head be cut off. Uh, that, that's not going to be a great role model for you going forward. So I do think Anne's fate certainly shaped her daughter's outlook. She famously declared, I will have but one mistress here and no master. And she meant it. Nobody thought she did, that she would really, you know, she'd soon settle down and get married to a foreign prince or, or a homegrown candidate. But no, she was going to be the Virgin Queen. And I think the roots of that decision absolutely lay with her mother's fate. But what did she actually think mm. of her father? That, that is the really fascinating thing. And I don't think she revered him. Look at what happened when Henry died. His last wife, Catherine Parr, who Elizabeth was quite close to, she immediately pretty much, well, certainly with, quote, unseemly haste, married Thomas Seymour. So really, she should have stayed in mourning for about a year or more. But instead, after a few weeks, she married again. And the rest of the court would have nothing to do with Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour. They, they were sort of social pariahs because mm. they disrespected the late king's memory. Elizabeth went to live with them. And I think that kind of speaks volumes. Yeah. Really. So, you know, she didn't necessarily have a problem uh, with this disrespect that had been showed to her father. The other thing I would just like to mention is that uh, there is a theory that Elizabeth remained the Virgin Queen 
to avenge her mother because she knew it would condemn her father's dynasty to dis- uh, to extinction. So, you know, I don't know. That might be taking things a bit far because it sort of shot herself in the foot as well, didn't it? Really. So she was she would be the last Tudor queen, but but I do think her feelings towards her father were a lot more complex than those towards her mother. Yeah. Do we have anything that she's kind of recorded as saying or recorded as writing that kind of hint that she's probably you know bearing a grudge is the is the wrong phrase, but that that there's at least like a simmering "you killed my mother" resentment here. There are a couple of very obscure references that that have been interpreted, but we're literally talking about, you know, when Elizabeth does one of her many translations of of Latin and Greek text, and or could it be read that way as a criticism of the male gender and therefore her father? It's a bit tangential. And so I think the short answer, Paul, is no. Uh, She didn't really leave anything on record, and she was too smart to do that, really, anyway. But with Elizabeth... Actions definitely speak louder than words. I do think you know that example of her going to live with Catherine Parr is quite a, it's quite a telling one. But as well, I think Elizabeth, like her father, actually was very good at convincing herself some, that something was true, even in the face of, of contrary evidence. And I think what she convinced herself of was that Henry VIII shouldn't really be blamed for Anne Boleyn's death, and that he was tricked by his courtiers into ordering her mother's execution. And you do see her refer to that, actually, quite openly. Yeah. And I just wonder if she believed anything about her father. She may have believed that, because otherwise, that's a hard one to get your head around, isn't it? Oh, yeah, my father executed my mother. You have to try and find something that's a bit less bleak to explain that one, I think. Yeah, but I suppose you only need to go back as far as her grandmother to find somebody who married the man that killed the uncle. You yes. Know, it's, it's... Yes. Oh, dear. Blood and water. Yeah, which one's thicker in yeah. the Tudor period? Not, not quite sure. <laughs> yeah, there appears to be more blood flowing than water in some parts. Yeah. <laughs> so now the, the, this is the bit where myself and my wife may argue, but here goes. So okay. Elizabeth I is often portrayed as the strong and independent monarch, the... the the heart and stomach of a king, which is, you know, it's a fine thing to say three weeks after the actual battle. But Ooh. I know, take it. We take were getting it. on so well. <laughs> Are there any documented personal feelings or memories that Elizabeth had about her mother and how then do they go on to shape her as a ruler? Mm. There are tantalisingly just the occasional reference to on paper Mm-hmm. to how Elizabeth felt towards her mother. I can share many stories of her actions that speak a lot louder than this. But one Both particular... Work. Good. Well, one particular document I'd point to is that Elizabeth, when she became queen, chose not to overturn the annulment of her parents' marriage. She considered it, but um, Francis Bacon, her advisor, as he put it, the sore has overskinned. So leave it be. In other words, don't pick at the scab that is mm-hmm. the annulment of your parents' marriage. You know, people have started to forget about it, so don't don't do that. But what she did do was to make herself, by act of parliament, the legal heir of her mother, not just her father. She wanted to be seen as a Berlin, not just a Tudor. And in the wording of that act, which was very sort of form- formulaic and, and legal speak, 
Elizabeth herself annotated it. And when Anne Boleyn is referred to, in Elizabeth's writing is written, my dearest mother. And I think that that does really reveal quite something about Elizabeth's action towards her mother, her feelings towards her mother. But as I say, she's a, a woman of action. And I think one of the most revealing things that Elizabeth did as queen is to fill her household and her court with Boleyns. It's almost impossible to get a job at Elizabeth's court unless you're related to her mother. So you look at her male advisors, kept the Careys figure prominently. So the Careys are the descendants of Anne Boleyn's sister, Mary, who married uh, William Carey. And so Henry Carey, for example, highly favoured. The Howards as well, Howards and Berlin's closely related. Uh, Elizabeth's maternal grandmother was a Howard. And her, her privy chamber, which is staffed by women, again, lots and lots of Berlin relatives. So, yes, Elizabeth surrounds herself with her maternal uh, relations from the beginning of her reign. And it's, it's one of the clearest actions, I think, really, that, that show just how she felt towards her late mother. Okay, so as we mentioned before, sort of Amberlin's religion significantly influences the English Reformation. So how does how does Elizabeth balance her mother's faith with the need to maintain a political stability in let's let's be fair, an England that is on fire when you talk about religion? Yes, it literally when it was the reign of Elizabeth's half-sister, the so-called Bloody Mary, with the burning of Protestant mm. heretics. Elizabeth was first and foremost a pragmatist. It was one of the qualities I most admire in her, uh, in that she'd learned the lessons of the past. She'd learned that you couldn't be too dogmatic as monarch. In her heart, she was Protestant and, and a reformer, just like her mother. But she recognized the need for compromise. And she never said that wonderful quote about not wishing to make windows into men's souls, mm. but it did neatly encapsulate her approach to religion. In other words, you know, assuring Catholics, if you at least publicly conform, you can believe what you like in your heart. And, and that was enough for many Catholics, actually. And it did enable her to, to settle the question of religion, perhaps not Thoroughly, not permanently, but at least enough to bring some much needed stability. But I love it with Elizabeth because you get the sense that it's like a bit of pick and mix for her with religion. There are certain parts of Catholicism she really rather likes. She mm. likes some of the rituals. She likes the church decorations. So she Who has doesn't a few like of a those. wall painting. Exactly. It's all a bit austere, isn't it? In the, in the Protestant religion. And so Elizabeth weaves a little bit of that into her own private worship. And she's friends with some Catholic priests, some, some Catholic courtiers as well. So she's, yeah, she, she doesn't necessarily take a, a very purist view when it comes to religion. It is she, of all the Tudor monarchs, who firmly establishes Protestantism. But you know, she takes a few Catholic elements uh, just for good measure. I always found it interesting and, and even i'm going to be a little bit pro elizabeth here so you know, stand by um, but i've always <laughs> found it interesting that she does manage to calm those waters down when when she's probably targeted by the biggest number of catholic assassination attempts going 
So mm. she's very much living in that fearful time. She is seeing Catholic plots, successful Catholic plots of the rest of Europe. You, we look at the assassination of William the Silent. Mm. The, 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 I believe, I think, isn't that our first gun law that Elizabeth puts in place as a result of that? And yet with all this going on, you can see how she could become the opposite of Mary, the yes. Protestant Mary, but doesn't. Yes, absolutely. You can see that. And and as you say, and I'm so pleased I've won you over, Paul. Oh, you have I was just having a now certain... a, No, <laughs> no, no. I think we can take you as an Elizabeth fan now. <laughs> oh, no, the shame. Yes. Yes, your wife and I, we're, we've, we've done a pincer movement on you and we've now converted you to the glory that is Elizabeth I. She was great at learning lessons from the past and, um, and it was though a very, very dangerous age for her still. As you rightly say, she lived in pretty much daily fear of assassination in the latter part of her reign after the Pope not just sanctioned her assassination, but encouraged it uh, among her Catholic subjects. And it, it, it could have almost gone the other way had it not been for Elizabeth's brilliant network of spies led by Francis Walsingham. If you haven't already had Stephen Alford on your podcast, Paul, I would say get him on because his book, The Watchers, about you know, the spy network of Elizabeth mm. I is just one of my favourite all-time favourite book. Um, anyway, Noted. yes, Stephen Alford, amazing historian. But yes, uh, these were these were incredibly dangerous times for Elizabeth, and and she had to tread very carefully herself. Let alone, you know, trying to to settle the question of religion for her subjects. So, you know, we just like her more and more, don't we? As we're talking about her. Oh no! Now you're <laughs> taking this a little too far, there, Borman. Come on, <laughs> take your small victories. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, just to wrap up, are there any kind of specific policies, decisions, or actions that are taken by Elizabeth I that we can attribute to her mother's influence or being a way to honour her mother's memory? Anything that oh, she yeah. does or enacts while queen that is very much, you know, for Anne? Yes. So, the single biggest one has to be the establishment of Protestantism and the appointment of Matthew Parker. Anne Boleyn's former chaplain, who I mentioned Anne charged with looking after Elizabeth. So he was hugely influential over Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth knew what had happened, that in her mother's final days, she'd, she'd begged Parker to, to look after her daughter. And she rewarded him uh, with the Archbishopric of Canterbury, of course, the foremost ecclesiastical office in the realm. I mean, ironically, Parker didn't want to touch it with a barge pole. He's like, no, don't make me Archbishop of Canterbury. I don't want to do it. Thank you very much. But, but he, he was, you know, a man of his word. So he accepted, of course. So I'd say in terms of her actions as queen, you know, her, her public actions that affected her subjects, it would have to be uh, in establishing Protestantism and in appointing her mother's former chaplain as her foremost uh, clergyman, if you like. But there were so many other ways, so many other things Elizabeth did that were altogether more personal. And as her reign progresses, you see her becoming more confident in her queenship, more secure on her throne. So during the 1570s, this is really her heyday. She's been queen for about 20 years. And she starts to surround herself with her mother's emblems. She starts to 
display them, decorate her palaces with white falcons. That's, uh, that was Anne's most prominent emblem. Mm. And to, to have her clothes embroidered with, with falcons or with the armillary sphere, sort of a chart of the solar system. That was another of Anne's emblems. And her courtiers start following suit. They kind of cut, cotton on pretty quickly. Okay, if you want to get ahead, flatter the queen's late mother. So yeah. this is also when portraits of Anne start to appear in the long galleries of Elizabeth's courtiers. In fact, pretty much every portrait surviving over Anne dates from Elizabeth's reign. So the 1570s, I would say, was the heyday of Elizabeth celebrating her mother much more publicly than she ever had before. But for me, the most powerful thing she left behind relating to her mother was also one of the most private, and that was what's known as the checkers ring which is a tiny, tiny ring made from mother of pearl. It's a locket ring. And it's in the collection of Chequers House, uh, our prime minister's country residence. By the way, an absolute treasure trove. I think we ought to, we ought to see a bit more of that collection than we do, but therein lies another rage. Anyway, yeah. and so the Chequers ring, it, it opens to reveal two portraits, one of Anne Boleyn. I mean, almost certainly there's been a bit of deba- debate, but it, it is a spitting image of Anne. The other of Elizabeth. And, and the two portraits almost touch when the ring is closed. And on the outside of the ring, it's just an ER in diamonds. So it just looks like a, you know, any other ring Elizabeth might have, but only she would know what lay inside. And she kept that ring with her until the day she died. It was among her most treasured possessions. Well, thank you very much for that, Tracy. And, uh, and a valiant effort at winning me over to the cult of Floriana. <laughs> <laughs> well done well done i had i had to at least try you did for... and you you know you slightly succeeded which is better Ooh. than most did so. i'm i'm happy to hear it <laughs> thank you very much if you would like to know more about this subject then you absolutely should read tracy's book Anne Boleyn and elizabeth the first that will be available in the history rage bookshop and we will link to that in the show notes and you can follow tracy on twitter at tracy borman have you enjoyed this I feel so much better for getting that out of my system. Brilliant. I really do. I'm going to go and pour myself a large drink of water, obviously. I'm going to go and have some food. I'm going to calm right down, but feel just this great sense of relief at having vented my long pent-up fury about Elizabeth and Anne Boleyn. Thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We have several more coming for you over the course of the aftermath of the festival. If you've not managed to make it to this year, then the festival does return twice in 2024. Those dates are the 12th of April to the 14th of April and the 7th of September to the 22nd of September 2024. You can sign up to the festival mailing list at gloucesterhistoryfestival.co.uk and you can follow them on Twitter at GloucesterHistFest. If you're loving this, then please follow us on Twitter at History Rage and please support us on Patreon. In return for your cherished £5 per month, we will give you early episodes ad-free, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until our next and final rage of the festival period, stay angry. Bye-bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.